one, conversations at the speed of sound. The thrust generated by the rocket is matched to the velocity and altitude variables involved at the time of severance. Once the module is free of the parent aircraft, stabilization begins. There's a critical moment just as the module leaves the field of influence of the parent aircraft's body mass. The lifting module must be controlled from erratic motion or excessive pitch up. At this point, the stabilization brake chute is catapulted aft, counteracting any tendencies of yaw. This chute also helps decay the module's velocity, slowing it to 300 knots in order that the recovery chute may be catapulted. A brief excerpt there from a 1968 United States Air Force training film introducing aircrew to the F-111 crew module escape system designed to allow the crew of two to eject from a stricken aircraft with the entire cockpit module intact and then descend safely to Earth, or in the case of my two guests, as you're about to hear into the open ocean. Hello and welcome to this final episode of Season 2 of Mac 1, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. I'm your host, Gary Hills, a QAM volunteer. And let's move now to Australian voices and, more importantly, to the voices of two RAAF aircrew who ejected from their F-111 and who are about to describe for you what that was like. Come on, how often do you get to hear a story like this? I'll put a link to that 18-minute USAF training video on YouTube if you'd like to see the animations that illustrate the various aspects of the crew module escape system on the F-111 as designed in the 1960s. It was a treat to sit down with pilot, Air Vice Marshal retired David Rogers, and navigator, Air Commodore retired, and QAM volunteer, Peter Grouder, to hear all about the day in 1978 when they were forced to eject following the outbreak of a fire in the wheel well of their F-111 aircraft. We began in the cockpit of QAM's F-111, number 129, in Hangar 1 of the museum, Dave sitting in the left seat, Peter next to him, and me leaning in from the gantry outside with my trusty portable field recorder, and I asked them to describe something of how the F-111 modular escape system operated. Then we moved across to the studio to chat about just what happened that day, and for them to describe what it was like. So firstly, what's involved in ejecting this module? How do you do that? Well, there are two handles, one for each of the crew, and the actual handle, you squeeze the top white and pull it up, and it comes up about, about an inch or so, and that activates all the systems to actually eject the module from the aeroplane. And one of those systems, I believe, is that your harness automatically tightens so that you're safe in the process. You've got to go back to the actual design of the module because aircraft before used to have ejection seats and this was the first aircraft that actually had the whole cockpit in the module with. 
and it's based on the fact that when you are down flying in this sort of aeroplane it's better to get the whole thing out protect the crew and also provide all the rescue gear for them because we've got water bottles there we've got safety gear as well when you actually do the ejection there are a lot of things happen one the trims in the aeroplane go to actually zero so the aeroplane flies straight and level the as you said before the harnesses come back and lock you back in there because the idea is to keep your head back against the harness, against the, the headrest, so that when the actual rocket motor fires, it's a zero zero, you can be sitting on the ground and go, or you'd be up at altitude. If you're up at altitude, it separates from the aeroplane, then there are systems that says, I am too high, I don't want to slow you down too quickly, let you down, and then there's a, um, a drogue parachute comes out and stabilizes the actual module so that it's steady. And then when it's steady, there's, that actually pulls out the great big 64-foot canopy. Probably one of the differences, because of the module, if you think of all the wiring, all the controls that go through it, they've all got to be severed or cut in some manner. And there's a 0.3 of a second delay while this happens. And in our case, it felt like 10 minutes. Around the sides, all the little tabs that are there, they've, they've got to be blown off, the little explosive charges. So all that happens in 0.3 of a second. Um, probably the other thing, what it allowed us to do is because the aircraft was going to be a Navy aircraft and an Air Force aircraft, it satisfied both for them. Um, Air Force wanted the ability to eject it up to you know, twice the speed of sound, and you weren't going to do that in an ejection seat. So, um, and not coming out of it too well. Now you mentioned the rocket motor and the nozzles, the different different uh, thrust, yeah. that depending upon the circumstances. I think if you are at zero, if you are stationary, all the thrust pretty much is vertical to get you up. Whereas if you are in flight, uh, you don't want to be just going straight up. You want to have control over the exit. So the two nozzles cooperate. Is that there's right? Also, there's also an altitude factor. Yeah. Now, low level, you want the maximum thrust to get up. At high level, you don't want that because that can damage you physically. Right. So there is an altitude level at which you get full thrust and the other one that bifurcates the thrust. Probably the other thing is when, when we talk about pounds of thrust, um, the, the other way of probably bringing that home to people is we're standing here or sitting here with one times the force of gravity affecting us. You eject with between 14 and 18 times that and you land with roughly the same. So it is quite a, a significant uh, boot to get you out there and that's why it'll get, it gets the module up about 300 feet above the aircraft itself. It's an instantaneous G, it's not a lasting one, just to get it out of the aeroplane then you're away. The, the module itself is about 3,000 pounds, if I can talk in pounds, and as Dave said, it's a massive parachute um, and it's quite deceptive, your rate of descent. You know, I must admit, I thought we were going down quite gently until he said, let's get ready for impact. <laughs> well, it hits the ground at about 32 feet per second, even with the, the impact attenuation bags underneath. Right. And that's the same with jumping off a 30-foot cliff. So you've got to be ready for it. You've got a big chute sitting over the top. Um, you can talk to each other in, mm. you know, quite comfortably. Okay. Um, and you should have sort of emergency oxygen pumping into you. Yes. Um, 
Apparently ours wasn't working, but we didn't notice because we were breathing quite happily. Well, we're only 2,500 feet anyway. But yeah. Uh, right. okay. yeah. And one of the automated systems is for a UHF antenna to pop up as you're descending. I mean, you know, a lot's been thought about, hasn't it? And then also puts out a, a, a signal on 243, which is the emergency distress feature. Yeah. The rule said, OK, preparation for landing. And as Pete mentioned earlier on, we better get ready. The technique was to grab your harness over here and push your head back in and push your arms up against your head. The idea being to hold your head against the threshold of the uh, backrest. But when you hit the ground at 30 feet per second, right, there's a certain amount of impetus that drags things. because there's no muscles under here or under your arms and it's a natural reaction that. When that goes on, your head goes down and that's exactly what happened to Peter and I. Our heads went down and we got crush fractures on the front end of the spine and Pete got more than I. I only got two or three, he got four. Um, but we changed that later on, we sat down and thought about it, went through the whole thing and we said okay put your hands on your thighs, put your head back against the, the, uh, the headrest because the strongest muscle in your body is your neck muscle and hold it and just hit the ground like that and they all agreed we modified the flight manual and unfortunately about what six months later yeah. There was another accident in New Zealand where Al Kerr yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he got, they got out without a damage. All the, the, the handles up here on the, the centre panel, um, there was one when you land in the water, if it's upside down, uh, you've got the, whatever is the severance? Ox flotation. The ox flotation handle, yeah. which you can pull, and that pulls a whopping great airbag on Peter's side, yeah. um, and it brightens the module. The bags, the impact attenuation bags are automatic. They come out regardless of where you land. There's a parachute to uh, get rid of if you want to. So on, once you're on the ground and you don't want a, the parachute, stop you dragging me along, you can get rid of that one. And the, the severance and flotation handles other systems as well. So if you're down under the water, it's got something to bubble you up. If you're upside down, it's got something to turn you around the right way. Mm. So that then, once you're in the, in the water, you can actually open the uh, cannabis and go. I, I think that the thing is, it does float. You know, mm. it's your own boat, um, having its Navy heritage, probably, and one of the, or probably two of the things. On the left-hand side, there's a pin down on the bottom that the pilot can pull out, put in, and the control columns become bilge pumps. Mm. Now, Folklore had it, spread by the pilots. Their, their control column didn't work for bilge pumping. It was only the navigator's side that yeah, did course. that, which was not quite true. That was uh, a joke because I pulled out the bin and said, OK, start pumping Pete. And he looked at me, even though I was OCO, and he said, I shouldn't say this, but piss off. <laughs> when we went down under the water, it was we were setting up and probably only the nose of the module was above the water. We thought, oh, hang on, something's not working there. And then we sort of went back through the thinking processes and bang, up she came up and sat up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The big problem, I, I always thought, and I guess Peter had my job later on as the CO and the OC of the wing of the group, was if we had an ejection at night time over the water, um, say 100 miles out the sea where we used to fly quite regularly against naval targets and things like that, you would have a crew sitting in here, no lights, bobbing about like being in a cork in the ocean right you couldn't get out to them to rescue them because unless you had something to physically lift it out of the water and i would say that guys might be in there for about 10 or 12 hours you can have a torch 
but that wouldn't give you any of the uh, sensory perceptions you need to say, well, I'm, I'm horizontal, because this thing would be tossing and the brain would be going, the semicircular canals couldn't figure out what's going because there'd be no vision. Uh, in an ejection seat, if you're, in a, you're out by yourself and you're in a dinghy, you can hang on, but in here you've got no control. Mm. You're at the mercy of the, the sea. When, when we did go into the water, and as Dave said, you know, we were sort of sitting low and it popped up, but even then we were sort of a bit uncomfortable about where the water line was. Yeah. And yeah, my memory is it's sort of down there. It's only about that, that far below, yeah. And that's yeah. when we pull the oxidation to get us to sit a bit higher um, in the thing. The, the other thing, probably behind the navigator's seat, if you actually pull that forward, there's quite a cavity in there. That's where all the rations are. There's a whole pack of stuff in there. You, you've got a lot of stuff in there if you had to last for a while. Right. So, but I'm not sure I really would want to prove no, that No, no. Well, you, you've got the, the thermos flask here, yeah. and you had a, a, another kit down here which had the radio, and the emergency radio in it. And that was one thing that Pete and I had. Uh, we pulled out the, the radios, and you expect to pull out the radio, turn it on, and go, hello, Herbie, how I'm okay but it didn't work and Pete tried it, he had his, didn't work. We found out later on that some bright spark in the maintenance area had, when they were doing the servicing on these uh, radios, they found that the batteries were corroding. So they thought, oh, well, we'll take the batteries out and put them in a little plastic bag. So that when the crew needed it, they'd rip the plastic bag, put them into the radio. Now that's great on a nice sunny day, but if you're in the middle of the bloody night somewhere, and we didn't know about it because nobody told. None of the aircrew knew about this, so here we are talking on a radio and nobody could hear us because the radios weren't working. Well, it's a great pleasure to be joined in the humble Queensland Air Museum recording studio today by retired Air Vice Marshal Dave Rogers. G'day, Dave. Hi, how are you doing, Gary? I'm well, thank you for asking and thank you for joining us. I believe when you retired, your role in the RAAF was Deputy Chief of the Air Staff, is that That's correct? Right. That And here's little old me talking to you and another star in the room, RAAF uh, Air, Air Commodore, Peter Grouder, who's also a QAM volunteer. And Peter and I, and I have spoken recently about uh, the Canberra bomber. So thanks for joining me again, Peter. No, it's my pleasure, Gary. Thank you. Okay. What we wanted to talk to do today was to talk about your experience of ejecting from an F-111. Now, I think it was roughly 44 years ago, you were saying, Peter. Yes, just a little couple of days over 44 years. And probably if we look at the time, giving it New Zealand time right now, I'd say it was about now that it all started to go wrong. Wow. And yet... Not all went wrong because here you are telling the tale, which I'm delighted to be able to say. So 44 years ago, you mentioned New Zealand. Let's talk about why New Zealand comes into the story. Um, Dave, what was this mission that you were on at the time? Well, I was at the time was a CEO of uh, Number 6 Squadron. We'd been deployed to New Zealand for exercise Long X um, 78, which was an exercise to do with the Royal New Zealand Air Force and the Royal New Zealand Navy. And uh, we had been scheduled for this particular mission called 762 Bravo. We had Our leader was a guy named Herb Thurgood, who was 762 Alpha. And it was about a two-hour mission out to the east of New Zealand 
and then coming back uh, over the Coromandel Peninsula to attack a Her Majesty's New Zealand ship. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but And then do the attack on the ship with the two of us and then go back to Ohakia. That was the, the mission itself. The planned, everything went, worked well till we were around about, oh, about doing the actual attack on the ship and... You can tell them what the attack was all about, Pete. Um, in those days, it, I'll step back a bit, we had a smart aircraft but we had dumb bombs and so the profile we would fly was uh, you'd try and find the fleet on radar or, or be given a position but you still had to find it on radar to get the, the targeting solution um, and then at a certain point the you would accelerate the aircraft to roughly about 600 knots and toss the bomb into the fleet. So you can imagine the accuracy. So you were tossing a number of bombs, and in this case we were simulating, and that's the point we were at. And that's where things didn't go according to plan. So you say you were doing 600 knots. Yeah. What would your altitude have been? 200 feet, I suppose. Yes. We're doing yeah. about 610, 620 knots, and... These, uh, a warning light came on which said, wheel well hot. And what we used to have there for, for dire emergencies, you used to have what we called a bowls face action, which you had to learn by rote. I reduced the power to idle, popped the speed brake, which was the, the barn door, and we slowed down, pulled it up. I slammed the wings forward because we had the wings back at 70, 72 degrees and just slammed them forward to 26. And... Um, the wheel well light didn't go out and uh, put the gear down at the right speed and I got three green lights so everything looked all right for if we could recover the aeroplane but uh, the wheel well hot light didn't go out. So you don't know at this point whether that's just hot or whether it's fire or, no. or does it mean it's fire? No, it doesn't mean it's fire, not necessarily. It means yeah. there's a temperature yep. actually in the wheel well has been sensed by the actual uh, sensor in the wheel well. And was there a fire? Well, it's something we don't know. Um, even when they dug the aeroplane out of the water years later, or months later, and then reconstructed it back at Amberley, the one thing that they couldn't ascertain was the cause of the fire. In other words, why the fire started. But what they did find was that in the, uh, in the wheel world there was a, a pipe carrying, what was it, 15th stage air? 16th stage, stage air, which is about 1,500 degrees centigrade. Mm. So you can imagine if that got out, uh, there'd be a hell of a lot of hot air floating mm. around, which wouldn't impact on things like wires and pipes and stuff like that. So I guess, does that mean it's kind of irrelevant whether there's a fire or not? The fact that there's this heat is the problem. Heat's the problem, yes. Yeah. But in the, in the past, every time we've had them, I think we'd probably had three or four wheel well hot lights a year uh, where there'd been a leak in a pipe and the bowl face action had... Okay. And solve the problem, put the okay. gear down, get some cool air in, temperature comes down, bring the aeroplane back and land. So at what point did you know that that wasn't going to be enough this time? Well, we really didn't, did we, Pete? I mean, it was on for quite a while. Yeah. I'm, I mean, probably, as Dave was saying, we were, we were to the east of Auckland or northeast of Auckland, and because it's one of these emergencies, you want to get on the ground reasonably quickly, Um we, we were still quite heavy and um, you know, we went through what was the best way and we were going to RNZAF for Newapai, uh, which is just near Auckland. 
and but it's a short strip still better trying to fly for a long period of time to get back to where we'd come out of the um, base at Ohakia um, and so we, we were trying to reduce our weight by getting rid of some fuel um, as Dave mentioned before we actually had another aircraft join on us the uh, uh, Herbie Thorogood who went on to fly one of these 747s sitting here in front of us and captain them um, and uh, he, he was the one that could sort of monitor what was happening yeah. for us, which was good. That, that gives you some sort of feeling of confidence because you can't quite see what's happening underneath. Mm. He had a good look at the aeroplane and said, no, there's no indications initially okay. of any sort of fire. And uh, as Peter said, we were looking for Fanuapai. The runway length seemed okay. There was a cable there. We had a hook wire on the F-111. Mm. But we checked up on the books and it, it had a maximum weight for the cable which we would be in excess of. So if we did land and took the cable, it would have broken it. So we ummed and ahed and we thought, all right, well, we perhaps ought to go to um, Mangaree, which is Auckland International. So we, we told all the air traffic because we put out a PAN call first, an emergency call, told them everybody what we were doing. Herbie was watching us. and We started to turn for, for Mangaree to get, go around the, the, uh, the built-up areas of Auckland toward more to the east and uh, heading towards Wahiki Island, we're still over the water at this stage, and then um, things started to go wrong, more so than we anticipated. Describe what went wrong. Well, there was, um, we dumped some fuel and shut that, stopped the fuel, got the weight downs okay, and then Herbie said, you, you better get out of there, there's a fire in the wheel well. Mm. So he had seen it, mm-hmm. and we said, okay, all right. So we said, right, we I put out a mayday call and I said we're, we will be ejecting and uh, about, what, 10 seconds after that there was this ginormous boom down the back mm. and quite a lot of the indications on the engine instruments through things like wheel well, hot light, oh, sorry, oil hot lights and everything all started to come on. The warning panel lit up like a Christmas tree. Uh, the aeroplane was still flying okay, in other words, from a flight control point of view. But uh, things weren't looking too good, so we decided and we told Herbie we are ejecting and it, <laughs> tell him what that Well, he, um, having spoken to him subsequently in more recent times, he said he was just, he heard all this and he just looked inside his own aircraft to do his quick scan of what was happening in his and he looked out and there we were 200 feet above our aircraft. As part of the ejection process. So he actually missed the ejection and the separation from our aeroplane and the nav was looking the other direction so nobody actually saw it, apart from us. Feeling it. Yeah. So, so what makes the commander make the decision to eject then? You obviously felt that this was unrecoverable and you, you better get out. Yeah. The, the indications were the aeroplane wasn't going to last okay. any longer. And I said to Pete, OK, ejecting, let's get ready, position... And then we both pulled the handles, and I think I beat Pete by 0.3 of a second. So. <laughs> well, I, Dave pulled his, and I thought, oh, it hasn't worked. And that's when we were talking before that's this 0.3 of, of a second, second yeah. which felt, felt like 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. And so I grabbed mine and pulled it, and as, as I had pulled it, uh, we were off and running. Yep. Yeah. So there's a flight data recorder that indicated that you pulled that 0.3 of a second later. Um, no, I think... You just have that record. Both handles were pulled. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. When when you talk about flight data, it's it's interesting with the F one eleven 
is your flight data is your whole cockpit. If you think about it, everything freezes at that moment of ejection. Of course. So every instrument is showing you exactly what it was at that point in time. So describe to us uh, as civilians, some of us who are listening, what did this feel like? You know, you've trained for this, you, you get a bit of a sense of what it's going to be like, but what was it like to be punched out of this aircraft? A lot of people have said to me, and they've probably said to Peter the same, you know, it must be scary, but it's not because you're trained for it and your brain's thinking certainly you've got actions to follow and you expect these things. And, and um, when you pull the handle, boom, heads back, and I felt this whoosh go, and I heard a heard of whoosh, and that's about all it was. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a bang in the in the backside. It was a, a graduated acceleration out of the aeroplane. And as it picked up, um, I think probably as Peter said, the initial G is about fourteen on ejection. Mm. Um, that takes the little bit of blood out of your head, which means takes it out of your eye, so you can't actually see what's going. Probably a second or so later. It, blood starts to pop up and you're okay. But I had the feeling we were over on our back. But that was called, uh, according to my good friend, the doctor, somatographic illusion, uh, which the brain says in the semicircular canals, you're doing this, but you're not. And um, and then looked around, I could see Pete. He was looking at me. He said, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I said, I've got a bit of a sore shoulder. and uh, But that's about all. And then it's it's settled and we could see the big chute starting to deploy above the red and white um, parachute. And so that gives you the confidence factor that things are working. Yeah. What about uh, you, Peter? How did you feel? Um, I felt the same, that, that rocking back, probably not fully, uh, you know, there certainly was a sensation that you were going um, nose up and... Pitching up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, um, as I mentioned earlier, the rate of descent, in my mind, was probably a little bit deceptive. It felt as if you're just sort of not floating down, but we weren't rushing down. But then when you go back and look in the data, as Dave mentioned, you know, you're going down at a fair rate of knots yeah. because even though the chute is massive, the, the capsule itself is, you know, a good 1,500-odd kilos. And, uh, you know, we were uh, about 2,600 feet, I think, when it happened. So we had a reasonable amount of time. We could talk to each other. Um, because you have no electrics at this stage, it's just boys. Um, and, you know, it was, well, let's get ready. I mean, I, I'd have to say my attention was distracted a bit because I looked out and I could see the yeah. remains of the aircraft going into the water. Yeah. And I think I said that, oh, it's just going in. Uh-huh. And then Dave said, well, we better get ready. Mm. Yeah, because you could look over there and you could see the aeroplane, there were flames belching out. Mm of the back of the aeroplane, not only from the actual module where we got, but just behind, above the wheel well, there were flames belching out of there. And as Pete said, it just rolled over and then bing went into the water and we said, we've got to get ready. Mm. It was interesting because I said to Pete, are you okay? Uh, and he said, yep. And I said, I've got a bit of a shoulder plane. I just held up three fingers. And he, he knew what that was because it was the third ejection we've had out of the F-11. So well, that's the third one we've lost. Not the third one you had rejected. No, but no, the no. third ejection yeah. in the RAAF. I wouldn't be sitting okay. here now if that was like No, <laughs> that's number three, yeah. lucky number three. Now, you knew you were coming down in the water. Was that a concern? Not to me. No. It, no. It, fortunately, it was very calm. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't a rough sea or anything like that. It was quite a calm day, very little wind, and 
Um, and as we've talked about, the module is designed not just to float but to self-write. You can write it yeah. if it tips mm -hmm. over yeah. and it's sealed from the water so you're not likely to drown. Yeah. But you are trapped in there, aren't you, yes. I guess? Yeah, you are. In, you're captive, put it that way. Yes. I think the the biggest shock I got, and I can't speak for Peter, is that when it hit the ground, wasn't the, we expected the big bang, but it went down mm. a long way. Mm. And all you, it started to get quite dark. The shades of blue were getting darker, but I don't know. They probably think it went down to thirty feet, I'd, and then it started to bubble up, and and then it came up and sat with its backsides. And now we were sitting up at about sixty degrees, mm -hmm. yeah, which was a little bit disconcerting. Yeah. Over peak yeah, I mean, because I was looking at the corner, the rear corner of my canopy, to see where the water line was there, and it, and it didn't feel it was that far. I wasn't going to open it to check. <laughs> But, you know, you could look out and it didn't feel that the water level was that far below and that's when we decided to do the auxiliary flotation to sit us higher in the water. Okay. And, and it did. I think it made yeah. us a lot more comfortable then. So nobody's being asked to use the bilge pump. <laughs> uh, Facetiously no he was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thankfully, so there's no water ingress yeah. and you've you put out the Mayday so you know that help's on the way. People have seen you go in. Yeah. Um, how long were you in the water before you were able to actually exit the module? Well, neither of us got wet yeah. at all. We were, we were not in the water. It was floating and there were two, we could see these two vessels coming toward us. There was Mr... Uh, oh, Bruce. Bruce McDonald yeah. from Papatoi Toi yeah. and his father, who was probably around about 65, they'd been out fishing in their little 15-foot tinny and then there was a trawler coming over and towards us. So there was a sort of a sense of, OK, we won't be too bad. And we beckoned Mr McDonald in and at this stage we opened the canopies, which was quite OK, so it was knowing it, the... the sea was very flat and wasn't a chance of water coming in and upsetting the balance and things like that. And um, he came in and I can remember his father's eyes were as big as saucers because they'd seen the whole thing. They'd mm. seen the, the smoke and the fire and they'd seen the ejection and uh, something we haven't and nobody else has either. And uh, his father was like that. But anyway, we said to Bruce, look, could, could we hop in your boat? Sure. <laughs> Well, I think as he was coming in first, he was coming in on my side and, and the parachute was in the water down below and I, the last thing I felt was we don't want a boat wrapped around through this parachute to complicate the issue and I tried to open my, uh, my canopy but part of this auxiliary flotation is a big bag sits over on above that canopy so I ended up having to stab that bag so I could get the canopy open and tell him to stop, go round to Dave's side because I, I could just picture this propeller being wrapped up yeah. in his parachute because mm. he was coming in at a reasonable rate of yeah. knots. And he came alongside and we, I climbed in and then Pete climbed into my seat and back in the thing and uh, I said, well, back off. And then the, the trawler guy came in, he said, uh, with his Kiwi accent, when do you want to do with it, mate? <laughs> and I said, well, look, just hang on to the parachute. And I said, see if you can tow it slowly over to Wahiki Island. And um, so we left it at that and there's a story about that later on. But uh, then we got in the boat with Mr McDonald and we both said to gee, our throats are dry. Have we got any water? And uh, Bruce said, no, I've got some beer. <laughs> so we 
We quickly had a swig of beer, which was hot and dry. Uh, we're only there for probably what ten minutes. We yeah. had this wok 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 of the uh, the Iroquois coming in from Fenurpa. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the story about towing the ca- the uh, cockpit. So what ha- what was that story? Well, the guy started to tow it, and obviously the, he was chugging along at five knots, and we were sort of saying, "Well, do it slowly," suggested. Yeah. And it started to rock a little bit, so he, he stopped, which was very fortuitous. And he left it there, and then somebody else told him, he said, just leave it there, forget it, you'll be right. And the Navy came out later on on their tremendous monowire. Yeah. Okay. They winched it back on board. Right, so that was recovered, and I believe the aircraft was recovered also. Uh, probably got about 80% of it, Yeah, I about think. 80% yeah. of it. There was about 160 feet of water, right. and uh, the Royal New Zealand Navy um, did the recovery operation, what they could, and they dragged it up, and then it uh, was put on, brought back to land and then put in a herc and brought back to Amberley and then reassembled as much as they could down at... Uh, at 3 AD. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably, probably two things. I think that reassembly, actually, because they really wanted to find out what had gone wrong. Yeah. Um, but out of that, probably two important issues came out was the heat. There had been so much heat that they they felt that the undercarriage probably would have collapsed mm-hmm. if we had landed. Mm-hmm. And also the flight controls had been damaged so much by the heat that they were actually um, highly possible that they were going to fail not too long after the ejection. And so that would have been a worse situation because we would have been in a quite a built-up area. Um, as Dave mentioned, the, the New Zealand Navy uh, did the recovery and, and, and sadly... Um, one of their divers actually got the bends and perished uh, as part of that recovery process. And, and, and probably that was the real downer for us mm. because even though it had gone wrong and it had sort of gone right, you know, everything had worked. Mm. But this then, you know, just... And, and it's a hunk of metal at that stage and, and no life is worth a hunk of metal. And right. So that was quite sad. The... Um what Peter mentioned about the undercarriage was proven by the Aeronautical Research Laboratory metallurgists. Uh, they, they found some traces of molten metal, which had actually part of the undercarriage structure, which had, mol- which had mol- you know, been melted and then come straight down. And if it, he said if it was in the airflow, whilst it was molten, it would have turned 90 degrees, mm-hmm. which you can understand, but it didn't. And he said, uh, that indicates to me that there was the structure up the top there was not going to last the, the thrust of a landing, which in many ways um, would have meant had we got to Mangri, mm. we probably would have had to eject on land and the outcome may not have been as very as good because the water landing, albeit um, just as hard, it's not as hard as on land. So speaking of the landing then, uh, did you sustain injuries or uh, at all? Yeah, I um, one of the harnesses, I think it was on the right-hand harness, uh, went past the lock and it tore a muscle in my neck. That's why I had a bit of a sore shoulder. Um, but the, the landing procedure, as I mentioned earlier on at that stage, was to cross your arms, grab your opposite harness, push your arms up, and force your head back against the headrest and such that the ideal to keep your back straight so that when you hit the water, the 
the impact would be taken straight up and down the spine. Um, what actually happens, because there are no muscles under your armpits to keep your arms up there, when you hit the ground at 30 feet per second, um, your arms go down and the impetus pulls your head forward, bends your spine, which is exactly what happened to Peter and I. And we both got what they call anterior fractures on some of the, the thoracic vertebrae, which only took what, a couple of months to heal. Yeah, yeah, they, um, yeah I, I ended up with a few too, um, of damaged uh, spine. But um, what they were more interested in, I think, was that it had stabilised, that the damage had stabilised and didn't get any worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this happened at the end of October... We had a board of inquiry which took our attention for a while. Uh, then there was Christmas, yeah. and I think both of us were back flying probably in January of the following year. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because when we, we were airlifted out of Mr. McDonald's boat on the, the helicopter, <laughs> the only way they can extract you is to put the harness around you and winch you up into the helicopters. And the doctor said, "Oh, back damage. You know, you could have done." He said, "Look, there's no way in the world we can get out otherwise." Yeah. They took us back to Fanuapai. And the funny part about it was that this, as we understand, was the first ejection in New Zealand. And we landed and got out of the helicopter and walked over and um, we hopped in the ambulance to take us down to the, the medical section. And when we got there, we said, oh, where's the doctor? Oh, the doctor's gone home. The emergency's <laughs> over. You ejected. I thought, ah, well, there's a bit more to it than that. So they called him back again. He was a civilian doctor and he came back in. We explained to him about possible damage to vertebrae and things like that. And he said, all right, I'll organise some x-rays in at the Royal Auckland Hospital. So they put us in an ambulance. And on the way over the Auckland Harbour Bridge, I said to Pete, how are you feeling? And I said, I don't know about you, but I feel flushed. <laughs> you know, it was probably just the latent effect mm. of all the excitement and things like that, the adrenaline starting to pump. And I felt the pulse that was around about 200 and yeah. I, I never repeat for it about the same. Well, I, I knew my back hurt and I, and I suppose we were all a bit thankful that um, yeah. we were there. I, now, you took 44 years ago, so you do the, the Court of Inquiry, is that what it's called? Yeah. Board, Board of Inquiry. Board of Inquiry, yeah. uh, obviously, to go through everything that happened. Uh, cross all the T's, dot all the I's. Do do you are you offered counselling if you feel you need that as well? Is that is that normally the process that that long ago? Nah. Um, no, I think the only thing they offer you is if you feel that you know there, there might be some adverse findings or something. Yeah, they might offer yeah. you legal support, but right. um, probably the, the people were doing the board we had known for many years. Not probably in the immediate, but. Um, and so the Board of Inquiry is, is not to, you know, hang the guilty mm. chap, if I could say that. Um, it's more to find out exactly what happened, whether the procedures were right, and, and as Dave mentioned before, just the little thing with the batteries not being in the emergency radio. Well, we got that changed. Because um, I don't know what you'd do at night. You, know, mm. you, you wouldn't have a chance of finding them. And you also recommended a different posture for the actual yeah, touchdown, which, which yeah. was adopted later. The landing one, and yes. was better. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, and also some switch selections on uh, on some of the panels. Okay. That, yeah, the, uh, the guy who did the court was fellow named Gil Moore, who'd been the CEO of the squadron six months before it took over. And he was a test pilot involved in the program very early. Very knowledgeable guy, very capable. And he, he probed quite 
quite deeply, and rightly so, as mm. Peter said, to find out all these things. Um, but as Gil told me later on, he said the one thing that they couldn't ascertain was the cause mm. of the fire, the ignition that started. Mm. There was a little bit of speculation about when we dumped fuel that that could have done it, uh, but that was never proven either. Mm. The need, it's something you need a spark or something like that to start a fire. You can have fuel around the place even with 1,500-degree air, um, air, but it won't start a fire unless there's a spark. Mm. Before we wrap up, was there anything we missed that you want to say? We, we actually went back uh, 14 years ago with our wives. Um, yeah. to, and, I mean, the closest we could get was to Waikiki Island um, to sort of gaze out on the ocean or where all this happened. So that was a bit of a trip down memory lane. We tried to hunt down Bruce McDonnell because actually he and his wife came over to Ambly about, yeah. what, six, eight months later? Yeah. And we got them, uh, and we showed them around the place and sat them in the simulator and uh, explained everything to them. Well, look, it's been marvellous to hear the story. Thank you so much. Um, we're saddened to hear about the loss of life in the salvage crew, yeah. of course, yeah. but we are so delighted to know that you are here to tell the tale, that the system worked, that the procedures mm. worked. And uh, it's a fascinating glimpse in, to me as a civilian into so much engineering and thought that goes in behind the scenes of these, uh, these aircraft. They don't just have to fly, do they? There are so many other no. things that have to be right. So mm. um, Dave Rogers, Peter Grouder, thank you so much. Thank Pleasure, you. Gary. Pleasure. Thank you. We're very grateful to Dave Rogers and Peter Grouder for making the time for us to talk and to hear that story. Dave was travelling. He was, uh, I believe, on his way to the Amberley Air Show and uh, was kind enough to stop in at the QAM to meet with me and with Peter to give us that story. It's always a rare treat. And, uh, you know, that story is now part of the uh, collection of the Queensland Air Museum as part of our podcast recordings. And uh, it was delightful to be able to meet him and to listen to them. And I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That's uh, the end of Season 2 for Mac 1 for uh, this year. We will be back in the new year. In the meantime, the Queensland Air Museum in Caloundra, uh, 7 Pathfinder Drive, is open every day. Don't come in Christmas Day, you won't find anybody there, but but we're open every other day from 10am to 4pm. I thank you to those who have not only listened to the episodes of the podcast, not necessarily every episode, but who are regular listeners and who have provided me with some comments and feedback and suggestions. Always, I'm always listening. I'm always appreciative of your your input. Uh, I was talking to uh, one gentleman, he and his wife are fairly regular listeners, and I said, look, the, what do you think about the fact that there's such variety in the topics that we cover you know it's not all about military aircraft it's not all about civilian aircraft it's commercial it's uh, pilots it's air crew it's uh, air hostesses it's all sorts of things is it too broad uh, to be of interest he said look anybody who's interested in aviation will find something of interest in pretty much every episode and I found that really heartening so thank you for that bit of a shout out to my mate Andrew Parks who's probably our most loyal listener I always enjoy catching up with Andrew every week and discussing some of the topics that uh, we've shared together. That's uh, that's good on you, mate. Thank you very much for that. You always make my day. And uh, to those of you who've listened who I haven't met, um, I appreciate knowing that you're out there. Please pass these around. Get get the word around that the Mac One podcast is 
is available. If you missed some episodes, go back and listen to them. They really are a wonderful little snapshot into the experiences of so many people in Australian aviation. And uh, we like to think that they are of interest enough for you to be listening and to be passing those on so that the Queensland Air Museum can continue to fulfil its mission to preserve Australia's aviation heritage. Thank you for listening today. Come in and see us soon at the Queensland Air Museum. We would love to meet you. Bye for now.